Hey everyone, I'm Ube Shibander and this is my podcast Port, where we'll talk international affairs, geopolitics, media, and war with some of the world's leading minds, usually my friends, and every once in a while, the troublemakers. From our base of operations here in Istanbul, where the East and West collide. We're live. We're with Morgan Ortegas, spokeswoman for the U.S. State Department. How are you, Morgan? I'm great. Thanks, Obey. Good to be with you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, look, I know you're you're really busy, especially with everything that's happening. But I thought we'd dive right into the to the deep end here with Iran, with a maximum pressure campaign. Of course, the Trump administration has vowed that it will continue the maximum pressure campaign against the Ayatollah and against Iran. And of course, for your boss, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, this has been an issue that's been near and dear to his heart. And of course, the Iranians are pushing back pretty strongly against this, but it seems that the maximum pressure campaign is having an effect. Give us a little overview of what's where are we now? Where's Washington now on this issue, on the maximum pressure campaign, on the nuclear program? You know, from from your from your perspective as the as a spokesperson. Yeah, so our policy uh, really has not changed in the past uh, two years. Um, it doesn't change because of COVID uh, or any other situation. And uh, you know, I I would remind everybody to all of your listeners that uh, the um, the opportunity for an off ramp is there for the Iranian regime. It's been there for the past two years. President Trump has been unequivocal that he doesn't want war, that he wants a peaceful solution, uh, that he uh, is willing to negotiate and talk with the Iranians. You know, and every single time we, the United States gov- government, issues out uh, and offers the hand of diplomacy, it is met with kinetic action by the regime. So while our policy remains the same, uh, it's not the Americans who have decided not to talk. It's the Supreme Leader and Rouhani and the rest of the leadership that have decided to keep this uh, antagonism between our two governments. So the off-ramp is very, very clearly there. But what the Iranian regime wants is to have their cake and eat it too. They want sanctions relief while they are simultaneously conducting missile launches that are in defiance of UN Security Council Resolution 2231. And we just saw one just a few days ago. Last week, they want to harass American ships uh, in the Arabian Gulf while calling for sanctions relief. None of this makes any sense. Uh, We are not fooled. We know who this regime is. At some point, they're going to have to make the calculated decision to come to the negotiating table, and we will be there. We hope that they do not uh, extend the pain uh, for the Iranian people, uh, but they certainly seem bent on it right now. Well, certainly the Iranian economy is taking a huge hit. And uh, most people forget that one of the main reasons why the maximum pressure campaign is so effective is because the European countries and Asian countries that are the main trading partners of Iran are buying into the maximum, are part of this maximum pressure campaign. That This isn't just a Trump White House U.S. campaign. Listen, our, our European allies, um, what we call the E3, so United Kingdom, uh, Russia, excuse me, United Kingdom, Germany, and France, they've made their position very clear. They have uh, said numerous times that uh, that they're staying in the JCPOA, that that's a mechanism that they hope to work from. 
Uh, we just have to look at the facts that Iran um, themselves, right, this isn't some sort of secret intelligence. Iran talks on a uh, daily basis, or excuse me, not a daily basis, but probably I would say at least three, if not four times uh, in the past year that they're going to violate some of the terms of the JCPOA as it re relates to uh, mm -hmm. nuclear enrichment. This is fundamentally one of the reasons why we thought the JCPOA was such a bad deal. Uh, there is zero need for nuclear enrichment if you have a peaceful nuclear program. There's no need, Obey, to have these discussions about a breakout period. You don't need to talk about a breakout period if you're not enriching. And there's no need to enrich uh, in, a, in a peaceful civilian nuclear program. We've got great agreements uh, in the Middle East. You can look at the one, two, three agreement. Uh, uh, many people have, have talked about that, have referenced that. So th there's, there's uh, a path that many countries around the world have taken in order to have uh, peaceful civilian nuclear programs. And we're not talking about breakout times with any of those countries because there's no need to talk about breakout times because they're not intending to build a weapon. And that's the breakout time. That's the terminology for the time it would take to build, to have enough uh, physical nuclear material to build a bomb. That's right. So, you know, you mentioned kinetic action, you know, and we just saw the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Navy uh, approaching U.S. ships in the northern Arabian Gulf. President Trump did not like that. And we saw strong words from the president, stern warning being sent to the Ayatollah. Do you think Tehran is getting the message or do you think we're going to just see another round of escalation? You know, it's interesting. Um, they they tend to sort of like a child, um, uh, prick, 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 and then and to see how far they can go. Uh, they like to know what their what their guardrails are. Uh, it's interesting that they choose this type of um, provocative behavior, especially you know coming in the in the wake of the death of Qasim Soleimani. Um, so I, I, uh, I, if I were the regime and, you know, clearly I'm not representative of the Iranian regime, <laughs> um, but if I was, if I was, I wouldn't test this president. You know, he has been, Secretary Pompeo said this at our podium, at our State Department podium last week, um, that he has been very, very clear with both, uh, Secretary Pompeo and with Secretary Esper from the Department of Defense, uh, that his you know, his primary goal is to protect the American people, right? So for Secretary Pompeo, that means protecting our diplomats abroad. For Secretary Esper, that means protecting our, our troops. Um, and, and President Trump is unequivocal about that. And so he has been uh, very decisive, incredibly decisive, uh, when it comes to anything that would put uh, American troops, American diplomats in harm's way. Um, and, and we, you know, if, again, if I were the Iranian regime, I, I would not test the president's resolve on that point. There will be no apologizing to the regime in order to get our sailors back, as the previous administration did. Let's just put it that way. The Iranian media has uh, shown that image time and time again um, from 2016 um, of that naval confrontation and when American uh, Navy uh, uh, sailors were taken hostage by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Navy in the in the Arabian Gulf. So it must have been quite the impact for you to see Qasem Soleimani being taken out of the battlefield. Of course, you're a spokeswoman for the State Department. You're you know you're you're a diplomat, uh, but you know you're you're also a a reservist, and you were there in Iraq. We were both there in Iraq in 2007 at a, at a time when Qasem Soleimani wasn't a household name. He wasn't on social media. Uh, but he was there sort of directing 
the the campaign, the Shia militias against uh, the U.S. and the Iraqi army. So it must have been quite a moment for you to see to see that happen. Yeah, I mean, it, it, again, that was you know that was a decision uh, that that you hope that you don't have to get to right. You know, the, the, again, there was a, there's there was an off ramp uh, for the regime, um, and, but then what you saw. Of course, we had the IRGC, that was a designated terrorist group. So you have Qasem Soleimani, who is the head of a designated terrorist group, uh, who was traveling uh, freely around the region, uh, freely in Iraq, uh, to plan attacks to harm uh, Americans. And one of those attacks, backed by Shia militias, uh, was on, U- on U.S. facilities in Iraq that ended up killing uh, killing an American, um, and that was clearly something that the president wasn't comfortable with. So uh, we think, um, you know, it, it, it's hard to know what will uh, convince the regime uh, to want to behave like a normal nation. Again, I think, Obey, it sort of comes down to the premise that we talked about earlier, that they want to have their cake in and, and eat it too, right? They want sanctions relief. They want to fund Hezbollah. They want to fund the Houthis in Yemen. They want to go on their terror campaign in the region while still having the world feel bad for them because of COVID uh, and, and getting sanctions relief. And so they're just going to keep getting, getting told no by this administration until they want to behave normally. That's interesting because you don't hear that narrative quite often from the media, whether it's the U.S. media or European media, uh, particularly because it gets framed in this in sort of this narrative of Trump. Uh, of from President Trump against the against the against the Iranians, and of course you've got Jawad Zarif uh, wooing many in the international media, uh, and particularly those in the think tank community, uh, whether it's in the U.S. and or, or Europe. But you're saying that Iran has that option if it so chooses to sit back to come back to the negotiating table. They've had that option for two years. I mean, listen, the proof is in the pudding. I can't remember exactly who the columnist was. Um, I think it might have been the New York Times. Uh, but within the past six months, uh, there was a very striking uh, column that came out that that detailed how the Iranian regime squandered the opportunity that had been given to them um, post-JCPOA. Uh, so that listen, the reason why so many of us were skeptical of the JCPOA is because we knew that the regime would get billions of dollars in sanctions relief, and we knew at the time uh, that they were trust- trustworthy. There, that there was no proven mechanism that they were actually going to spend this money on sanctions relief uh, for the Iranian people. I mean, look, we're in the middle of COVID, Obey. They could have spent those billions of dollars on having one of the most robust public health systems anywhere in the world, right? Mm. That money didn't go there. Uh, That's why you've seen um, dissidents, Iranian dissidents and former political prisoners that wrote to the IMF asking them not to give them any sort of uh, funds or any sort of any sort of bailout because those people uh, who have been terrorized uh, by the regime um, firsthand uh, know uh, that there is no intent to ever help uh, the people or the people of Iran. So there's no there's there's been no instance which we can point to where the regime gets any sort of relief, help, aid, funds, and actually uses that to better the lives of their people. They line their own pockets. They're corrupt as hell, uh, and then they spend the money on their terror campaigns in the Middle East, on ballistic missiles, on on things that uh, defy UN Security Council resolutions. So you're not buying that 
these recent launches, space launches of the satellite that's been put to orbit, that that has just pure civilian or scientific purposes? No, I mean, we, we called that out right away. Uh, again, we said that we believe that that violates uh, UN Security Council Resolution 2231. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier, the E3, the UK, Germany, France had strong statements on that. I mean, it's just sort of laughable that this regime will will uh, do these missile launches uh, that are in complete defiance of UN Security Council resolutions and in the same breath will, will ask for sanctions relief. It's It's, you know... It would be funny if it wasn't for the fact that it's actually hurting the Iranian people. From a personal perspective as a Syrian-American who was born in Syria, uh, to see what the Iranian Revolutionary Guards are doing in Syria and what they they have been doing for almost almost a decade now, goes back to your point of, well, that billions of dollars in sanctions relief isn't going into healthcare, isn't going for civilian purposes. So that for me, you know, I, I was just in Syria, just um, in, in the north, just a couple of months ago, seeing just miles of refugees forced out of their homes because of Iranian militias, because of the Assad regime. It's it's something that you that you don't forget. I think now that we're nine years into the Syrian conflict, into that civil war. Um, you, uh, you know, I think that the world has heard so many different competing narratives on Syria. I think they, I think certainly when you look at it from an American's perspective, uh, they know that Bashar al-Assad is, is, is a bad guy, is a butcher. Uh, we're certainly doing everything that we can, uh, to highlight, uh, just the, um, uh, just the inhumane way in which, uh, the Iranian regime and, and the Russians are involved in indiscriminately uh, bombing civilians. I mean, their campaigns are just you, you. People like you have have made sure that they are well well documented in Syria. But again, this is the this is the playbook that Iran uses uh, for the Middle East writ large, right? Look what they're doing um, in Yemen, for example. You know, uh, they want to. They don't want a peaceful region. They want a region that they dominate. They want to be, in the, and they want to be in menace where they can. So, has deterrence been reestablished with Qasem Soleimani out, with the maximum pressure campaign moving forward, or do you do you see the Ayatollah and the Iranians continue, continuing to play this game of chicken, as it were, to see what they can get away with, as as you mentioned? Well, I think both can be true at the at the same time. Uh, so I, I mean, we we certainly think um, that deterrence has has definitely been established. Uh, they I think look at the when President Trump says something, I think that they look at that very differently uh, than they used to, or or especially differently from what you know presidents uh, before before him said. Um, so so we know. I mean, it's just a fact. The whole the whole world saw what happened and the seriousness of it. And, and I think that they are very, very well aware. You know, they're going to try to push the envelope. They're going to try to figure out what the line is and get right up to the line. But they don't need to do all of this, right? It's, it's all unnecessary. Uh, they could come to the negotiating table at any point. They could work on creating a better life for the Iranian people. But regime survivability, regional hegemony, is more important to the leadership of the regime than the Iranian people. It's that simple. I mean, we have a lot of, we talk a lot, we talk about this a lot at the State Department. We actually do a lot of events 
uh, for the Iranian diaspora here in the United States. We try to give them a voice. In December, we had a really impactful event where we uh, we had a human rights day and we brought in Iranians from around the world who had you know, some some of them have been imprisoned for their, uh, you know, some of them for their faith, some of them for speaking out. Um, and so we try to do as much as we can. We try to message directly to the Iranian people. I do a lot of uh, a lot of Persian media where I can uh, to make sure that I'm speaking to the Iranian people. Um, so we and we even saw some some you know, like beautiful scenes after the Ukrainian uh, airliner uh, was uh, was down by the Iranian government. They of course denied it, said they weren't involved. They were caught red-handed. They had to come out and correct to the whole world and to their people that they were in fact who shot down the who shot down the airliner. When you saw the Iranian people protesting their government for doing that, there were some really beautiful moments. Uh, where you know you circulated on social media, where you saw an American flag and an Israeli flag, and Iranian protesters were refusing to step on the flag. They were they were being respectful. Right, so the government places these flags on the ground. That's right. It, was, it looked like it was in the in the pictures circulating online in the videos. It looked like maybe it was a drawing. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but it certainly looked like people were were making the effort to be respectful. So it's important for us for the Iranian people to know. President Trump said this very early in his administration that the first victims of the of the regime are the Iranian people. So we are very very acutely aware of their plight. Uh, we're very aware that that this is a, a regime that uh, uh, that does not represent most Iranians, uh, most of the Iranian people, and we hope and pray for a better life for them. Well, corona, the Corona pandemic has hit Iran pretty hard and has hit. Some of the senior echelons of the Iranian government and the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, from what we've seen in the in the open media. Yeah, it's still I, I, it's still at what we think at least seventeen regime officials that we know of that have passed away from COVID. Wow, wow! So that's that's certainly more than the numbers that we're hearing from you know, official sources in Iran. But you know, I, I think that goes without saying. Yeah. Yeah, we're counting at least 17. It could be more by now. Well, you you had, speaking of which, when it comes to narratives and corona, you had quite the, the heated back and forth with the, the spokeswoman of the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, <laughs> of course, China, to just to give the backdrop to, what's, to our listeners, the Chinese government has been trying to pin, you know, various conspiracy theories that uh, the coronavirus was manufactured by the U.S. and some other conspiracies. Uh, but your office has been uh, hitting back pretty hard on that. Yeah, well, listen, we're going to hit back at disinformation wherever it is around the world. So if it's disinformation coming from the regime in Iran, if it's disinformation coming from uh, Chinese Communist Party officials, or, or if it's disinformation coming from Russia, uh, we're going to call it out wherever it is in the world, You know, Cuba, others. Uh, we certainly have seen a, a convergence of disinformation uh, between Russia and China uh, and Iran. We pay very close attention to this stuff, and and when there are malicious uh, things spread uh, about, like our military by the CCP saying that the U.S. Army is spreading COVID, we're just not going to let that stuff stand. What the Chinese need to do is let the world, let independent, credible scientists and doctors uh, go into Wuhan and do the proper research and vetting required, so that we can actually find uh, what the true cause of 
this pandemic was so we can ensure that it never happens again. So I'm just grateful to uh, be a part of administration where um, we can speak out forcefully. Um, and we we try to call uh, balls and strikes black and white. You know, some administrations uh, have trouble, uh, you know, being definitive about talking about the world as, as it really is. And and that's something we talk a lot about. The secretary and, and, and Mary Kissel and I talk a lot about at, at the State Department about calling the world out exactly how it is. Not not an idealistic version of the world, not the version of the world that we want, uh, but the but a version of the world as it actually exists. It's very Kissinger-esque. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the grand opening to China may not have worked as as I'm sure he envisioned. Well, Beijing is certainly not happy that the U.S. is pushing uh, for transparency and access to the Wuhan labs. Do you think the Chinese government is trying to hide something? Um, We just don't know, right? I mean, that's the problem. When you don't have full transparency, not just by the Chinese, but look, by the Iranians and many other authoritarian regimes around the world, when you don't have full transparency, you don't know know the full extent of... um, uh, of of what the truth is, and so that that's really what we're what we're trying to get to. And it's not it's not even about the blame game. It's not about retribution. You know, at the State Department, we look at this as the fundamental thing that the world needs to answer after all of this is is how do how do we ensure that this never happens again? And we can't answer that fundamental mm-hmm. question uh, until we understand what exactly uh, happened at the beginning of this pandemic. And for whatever reason, the CCP is hell-bent on us not finding out the truth. Well, that and by itself may speak volumes. Morgan Ortegas, spokeswoman for the U.S. State Department. I greatly appreciate your time and your insight. The world as it is, not as we wish it to be. So we just heard from one of the Trump administration's more senior officials when it comes to foreign policy, on some of the challenges that they're facing around the world. And it's not just China that Washington is currently embroiled in a standoff with. The Trump administration's maximum pressure campaign on Iran is, in a nutshell, a series of punishing economic sanctions that have drastically reduced Iran's oil exports and crippled its economy. The campaign was launched when Trump reversed the Obama nuclear deal with Iran, citing major deficiencies with the agreement. Ayatollah Ali Khamenei is furious with President Trump as his administration continues to pile on the pressure on Tehran to try to prevent it from developing a covert nuclear program. Little surprise there, but so far, despite the posturing back and forth between the two adversaries, World War III has not broken out yet. That, of course, has not stopped the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Quds Force, the external special operations arm of the Ayatollah, from launching attacks against civilians in Syria and attempting to smuggle precision-guided ballistic missiles to Shia militant proxies in Syria and Lebanon. And while the Israeli Air Force continues to target those missile shipments, Iran's Quds Force and Hezbollah proxies now find themselves in control of large swaths of territory in Syria and beyond. 
There's little doubt that Iran's network throughout Syria and the wider Middle East continues to grow. I myself saw firsthand evidence of the destructive repercussions of it when I went inside northwest Syria just last month. And while the US Navy has firepower dominance in the Arabian Gulf with its aircraft carrier strike groups, Iran's Revolutionary Guard Navy showed last year that it is willing and capable of launching deniable attacks against soft targets like oil tankers and commercial ships in one of the world's most strategic and busiest waterways. So back to the central question at hand. Will Iran decide that it is a country, not simply a cause, and accept the Trump White House's invitation to negotiate? Or will the Ayatollah's theocracy misread Trump's resolve and miscalculate, triggering an even more destructive confrontation in the midst of a worldwide pandemic?